Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. This is part one in a four-week Wednesday night class series called God's Purpose for Sex in Marriage. The content in this lesson is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Wow, we got a full house. This is great. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. Um, so we are, we're going to be talking about sex for four weeks. All right. Um, now, many of you probably have been in classes where, where you have talked about or listened to lessons about, you know, just what the purpose of sex is and, um, how God intended for us to wait until marriage or, you know, different things like that. This is really more of an education on uh, different perspective, different perspectives of sex through time. OK, so we're going to start out tonight. We're going to talk about sex in the ancient cultures. We're going to talk about sex in the ancient Near East, which would be like Babylonia and uh, ancient Greece and Rome. And we're, so we're going to focus in on that tonight. And then next week, we'll talk about how perspectives of sex have moved from those cultures and how they influenced um, what what uh, the early Christian writers were talking about, like in the second century and third century. And then we're going to talk about how that's influenced our present understanding perspective of sex. And then we're going to get into what does God have to say about sex? What does the Bible have to say about sex and its intended purpose? Okay. So we got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, my wife will tell you I'm very verbose. So we, I'm hoping that we can actually get through all of this material. If not, you know, we'll just do another series. Right, Bill? Okay. All right. Um so the, I guess the first thing that, that I would say is there through time have been very different perspectives on sex. OK. And I really the reason that I think it's important for us to talk about sex in the ancient world is that if we understand what people believed. What the you know, what the philosophy of the day was then we can have a better understanding about even what scripture has to say. Um, there, are, there are scriptures in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that specifically talk about Israel not participating in certain sexual practices, right? Some of that is directly uh, oppositional to what's happening around them in the other cultures it, with some of the other uh, people groups of the time. Okay, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. I, I don't really have enough time to cover all of the details, but I'm going to try and give you sort of a big overview of what the perspectives were. And I want you to feel free to stop me if I've said something that you have that you're like, I want to I, I don't really understand what you're saying or I need to I need to understand that better. Um, the other thing is. In, in a conversation about sex, I have to use words referring to sexual body parts, right? So I, I hope that you came in prepared to hear some things that might be embarrassing to some folks, right? Um, but I, I promise you I don't, I don't use terms in a derogatory way or in a way to offend. I just have to 
say certain words to describe what we're talking about here, okay? Um, and I am going to show you some pictures of some sculptures from Greece and from Babylonia. Um, they are depictions uh, and they are like nude bodies. And so I hope you won't be offended by that, but I think we can all be mature enough to, to not be overly bothered by um, sculptures that many of us have probably already seen. Okay. All right. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but um, I really appreciate the, the very large crowd that has joined us tonight. This is, this is great because I think that it shows uh, an interest in, in this topic in a way that a lot of churches are not talking about it. This, this is not an open conversation in many of our congregations, and it should be, right? I mean, God intended sex to be something very beautiful, and it has been so corrupted. It's been so corrupted that we're afraid to talk about it in this place, right? People have avoided the topic, and, and therefore, we've been unable to have the type of open and honest dialogue that we need to. So, that being said, we're going to kind of jump in. Okay, um, let me ask you, what... Uh, what is the key sexual figure in the ancient Near East, like with Babylonia and the ancient Akkadians? You've heard this name before. Israel participated in practices that, uh, that the other cultures were doing at the time. Can anybody think of who this goddess was that they were worshiping using sexual practices? Diana? Somebody say Diana. That is, that is one of the goddesses. This is actually a picture of... Well, that's showing you all the wrong view. That's okay. I can switch it. What Asherah was it? It was Asherah. This is a picture of Asherah. That's right. So Asherah was the goddess of fertility. Um... I need to switch this real quick. Hold on. Bear with me for one second. All right. Asherah, who you see here, uh, was, was uh, the, the goddess of um, fertility and creative energy, the sky goddess and she was worshipped with, um, th- this is actually, an Asherah pole is, is actually referencing what, what would have looked like a large penis, okay? So that's what an Asherah pole was. So when you read about that in scripture, that's what they're referring to. So this, this Asherah pole, this is where they would have, they would actually have sexual practices around this pole to worship Asherah, the goddess of, of love and creative energy, um, Let's see. So this is this would this is what they believe she looked like. There there are um, there are other depictions of her, and she's she's got her arms underneath her, and she's holding up her breasts, and that was significant in the ancient world. It was a sign of femininity, feminine feminine power, and so 
um, you might see depictions of Asherah holding herself like this. Okay. Um, what we know about the sexual practices of the Babylonians and the Akkadians and all those, uh, all the other peoples that are surrounding Israel during the time that um, Moses receives the law and 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 God is is laying out what he's calling his people to do. Much of what we know uh, comes from their religious practices, okay? But we do have some texts that will that shed light on what marital practices were like. Um, so, for instance, among the Babylonians, it was okay for a, um, a man to marry a mother and a daughter. So... They could, actually, there are, there are um, uh, manuscripts that talk about a mother and a daughter marrying a man on the same day. So imagine that. That would be pretty interesting, right? Uh, also, if the Babylonian father did not like the husband, he could take his daughter away from the husband and sell her to another man. Okay, so some of that shows you perspectives of women during this time, right? There's some things that we we could have all kinds of conversations about gender in the ancient Near East and and what that meant and what that represented. But I'm not going to go into too much detail because we just don't have enough time. Um, So. As I said earlier, you will also hear echoes of that, things like uh, a woman and uh, her daughter could marry a man. You can hear echoes of that in the law itself as God is laying that out for Israel. Okay, um, God very clearly wanted Israel to be completely set apart in every way, and including their sexual practices. Okay? All right. So let's talk about ancient Greece. There, there is, can anybody tell me the difference between classical Greeks, Hellenistic Greeks, and post-Hellenistic Greeks? Anybody want to take a shot at it? You look like you know. No? Huh? Years? That's true. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. There's one main key figure that's really important to Hellenism, Alexander the Great. Okay, so the classical Greeks were were pre Alexander the Great. The Hellenistic Greeks were during the time of Alexander the Great and his reign, and then the post Hellenistic Greeks, and and really, the Greek culture had, had was pervasive throughout um, that region of the world with the Romans and, and all of the others. So, so after uh, Alexander the Great and his reign uh, would be post-Hellenism, okay? So the classical Greeks, uh, and, Al- and by the way, Alexander the Great, I, th- I, I should have written this down, but I, I believe he was, um, he was alive around uh, the first century B.C., which would have been like, you know, 100 BC, somewhere crossing over into AD. I don't know. Does anybody know for sure? Maybe a little bit before that, but sometime around there. So we're talking about right around the same time 
that Jesus comes um, into the picture, okay? But he, he, he predates Jesus just a, just a little bit. Uh, but the classical Greeks, uh, they, around the 4th and 5th century B.C., they started a practice um, that's really well known that we're going to talk a little bit more about later, but it's called pederasty. And some of you might have heard of that, um, but we're, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit later. Uh, but, but the Greeks really dominated the landscape of culture in general and specifically sexuality, okay? There were some differences between the Greeks and the Romans. I'll talk about that in a minute. But right here, this is a depiction of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. Uh, she obviously female goddess of love. Um, she represented love, beauty, and eternal youth. Now, this sculpture stood in many different places in ancient Greece, but it was very well known. And there's a story about a, a man, a young man, who upon seeing this sculpture fell in love with Aphrodite. And he, he, he was so smitten by her beauty that he, he ran and threw himself off a cliff. And so the, the legends were that, that her beauty was so intoxicating that she could even cause men to throw themselves off a cliff and die. Uh, the Greeks believed that an image like this, that the way that your brain processed an image was that it actually would, would enter a smaller uh, version of it, would enter through your eyes and into your soul and could imprint on your soul. So that's why she could be so intoxicating, right? Okay. Um, what do you notice about about her. What do you notice about her body and <laughs> they really valued no arms, no. Uh, what what else? What do you notice? She is not a size two. That's exactly right. Is her nose flat or did it get broken off? It was it was broken off. I, I, I'll show you a picture, an up-close picture of, of her face, a depiction of her face in a minute, but this, this one, her nose is broken off. She has a very feminine Yes. That's right. She's very womanly, very fem effeminate. Very human. Human. What's that? Somebody might have posed for that. Yeah, it, almost just like a, you know... We, this this is not necessarily uh, what we would see walking down a runway, you know, in dressed up in um, as a model, right? They they valued some very different things than what our culture does. She has more of an hourglass figure. I would say in our culture, you know, for the most part, uh, very large breasts are, you know, what, what people hail, which is not what you see here, right? Now, obviously, I'm not endorsing those things as, as the standard, but our culture compared to this, you see some, some big differences. Anybody else have anything they wanted to add to that? Okay. 
This is a picture of her of her face up close. Do you notice anything about her features? It's like the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, kind of does, doesn't it? Maybe she was French. Is her hair curly or braided? Uh, curly. Yeah, curly. It seems to me she has strong features. Okay, yeah. Her her nose is uh, is not tiny, right? Uh, that's a nice way to say it's big. Yeah, there's a little masculinity there, isn't there? It's really interesting. Strong look. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in the Greek and Roman culture, they believed that women were men with inverted genitalia, right? So a masculine-featured woman would have been more desirable. That the masculine body and, and masculine features were the ideal, okay? So that, that, would, that would explain why she looks a little more masculine. Well, I'm assuming she's probably Most likely, yes. Yeah, and these sculptures were done, I mean, we're talking about starting in the 4th or 5th century B.C. all the way, you know, to three or 400 A.D. For a thousand years, they were carving this ideal woman, okay? So, so this represents a very long period in, in, in Greek culture, so Melissa. Did ideal woman change over those centuries? Or did it What's that? Over those centuries you mentioned, did their ideal change or was it pretty consistent? No, she remained their ideal. Okay. Yep. Okay, this is the ideal man. Does anybody know who he is? His name's Doriferous. What do you notice, what do you notice about Doriferous? He's ripped. <laughs> Six pack. Looks like me. He's a bad man. Yeah. He's he is ripped, isn't he? He also has a large nose. This is him up close. In some ways him and Aphrodite don't look much different, do they? interesting isn't it he is ripped but he's not overly ripped right he doesn't have the massive chest and you know the i'm thinking of the movie 300 you know these guys are just like chiseled right that that's not deriferous the reason is that in the greek and roman culture during this time they valued symmetry Symmetry was extremely important. So, an ideal man, in fact, they, they have uh, grids that are drawn on Doriferous' uh, body to show just how symmetrical this statue was, okay? He's ideal because his left peck is identical to his right peck, and his abs are identical to one another, right? His legs are very similar. There's... 
very little discrepancy between the two. And they would value that not just in a statue, but also in people, which is really interesting. Symmetry and restraint were two things that defined this this time period, this culture. Okay, here's another look at him up close. So, um, they believe that males uh, were able to restrain themselves more readily than women, than females. Which, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, they, they believed that the reason for that was that women were imperfect. That women's bodies were just an inversion of a man's body. Okay? So, um, penis size was not important to them. Symmetry was. Which I would say is a different ideal than what our culture propagates, right? They even, they even had rituals that the perfection of the body was so important to the Greeks and the Romans. They had rituals that circumcised men would actually go through a process of binding themselves so that they would no longer show their circumcision. And then they would present their bodies before, before judges and they would, they, would be, they would be lined up nude and the judges would, would determine who was the ideal man, right? Based on their symmetry, those that had the fewest, scar, fewest scars which circumcision was considered to be a scar. Those whose, whose left side of the body was most like the right side of their body. It's very fascinating how they determined what was valuable during this time, okay? Um, so, as I said earlier, this persisted through several centuries. And... Um, there were many, if somebody went to, um, let's say they went to the temple of Aphrodite, they would worship Aphrodite similar to Asherah by having sexual intercourse with temple prostitutes of that time, um, seeking fertility, seeking blessing, and visiting a temple prostitute was not considered infidelity. It was considered just part of normal religious practice during the time. So when you hear Paul talking about fleeing from sexual immorality, this is the kind of stuff that he's talking about, right? Okay, so what were the marital practices like? Well, uh, women, this is just kind of generally... Uh, women were betrothed and the, the, the transaction would have been conducted by the father and the fiance. Um, there were actually more laws uh, around women's rights because of how they believed that they were, they were more bent to be sexually promiscuous. So they believed they needed to be watched over and um, in, in Greek culture, 
women would, early, would, would marry usually around age 15. And they, they could only marry and stay with their husband. Um, they were not allowed to have other sexual practices outside of the marriage, which in some of the other cultures they were. Um, men were much older, typically around 30 years of age. And the age discrepancy reinforced male superiority. Okay? So uh, we're talking about 30-year-old men marrying 15-year-old women. Imagine if that happened today. I mean, you've probably heard of at least some news story where that happened, right? Does anybody have a 15-year-old daughter in here or close? Yeah? So isn't that just kind of mind-blowing, like, that they would, that, that these kind of practices were in place? But this was the, this was the, these were the times, okay? They were also free to marry cousins, uncles, and other close relatives. In Sparta, which is sort of the precursor to Greece, but there's still, there were remnants of it. And it's important to kind of talk about that a little bit because it influenced Greek culture. Um, the women would marry at age 18. They could have children with more men than just their husband because it was a, uh, it was a, a war culture, right? So the more men, the more boys you had, uh, the, the better your army was. So women were able to freely have children with as many people as they wanted to. Um, they had to get permission from their husband, though, before they could uh, have intercourse with another man. So in uh, Roman culture, uh, women were 12 to 16 years of age. Typically after their first period w- was when they would begin to look for a a partner for them or they would allow them to be married. Uh, In Rome, sexual contact with other women prior to marriage was actually encouraged. And um, initially they weren't allowed to have kinship marriage, but, but later on it became legal. Sexual practices such as homosexuality um, and other types of sexual practices were actually illegal during this time. Okay. Um, we're going to talk more about that though, because that's an important point to come back to. So the men, they were, they were around 30 years of age and, um, they believed that that gave them time to establish a career, right? They could, they could have time to, to network and connect and build their skills within their work. And so, um, they were allowed to, you know, wait until that, that late in life. And they were also free to have multiple sexual partners, men and women. Now, they could only have sexual intercourse with men if they were temple prostitutes. Otherwise, homosexuality was illegal. Well, anal intercourse was illegal. But um, there was a practice, and this is important to talk about because this is uh, part of the debate uh, regarding homosexuality uh, today, um, there was a practice called pederasty, which men prior to that 30 years of age, they would, put, they would probably, not all of them, but some of them would practice this 
And pederasty was, uh, it was a popular practice. Um, there are writings by Plato and Socrates about pederastic love and how it was the highest form of love. And keep in mind, in their minds, men are the ideal and women are secondary, right? And so, so um, love between two perfect beings, men, was encouraged, right? Although anal penetration was illegal. So the pederastic pro, uh, practice was that an older male who was in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s, prior to marriage, and sometimes during their marriage, would take in a younger man who was just post at their you know adolescent puberty so around 14 years of age now they would engage in sexual practices uh, that were that did not include anal penetration at least that's what was espoused right so if you were to look up pederastic pottery you would see depictions of a man an older man putting his penis between a younger man, an adolescent 14-year-old boy, between his thighs, typically from behind. And this was an acceptable practice of the day. in, In fact, as I said earlier, it was encouraged and considered to be the highest form of love. So in, in the debate about homosexuality today, many people believe that Paul was referring to pederastic practices when he's referring to homosexuality. Now, there's a much larger discussion about that that we certainly can have, um, but that is sort of where people are taking a turn and saying, okay, this we think Paul's referring to something completely different, okay? But we will talk about that. Um, so, by the way, that practice that I talked about, the sexual practice that's depicted was called intercrural intercourse. Intercrural intercourse. They believed that um, anal intercourse represented a lack of restraint, whether it was between a man and a woman or two men. So it was illegal in, in either capacity. Now, as society, as society went on, they would, they would eventually uh, get to a place where they, it was no longer considered something that was, um, it was still illegal, but it wasn't discouraged anymore. So it became more prominent. Okay. Um, Okay. So are there any questions so far? Anybody have anything they want to say or ask? So it's interesting that, um, Pederasty was promoted by Socrates and Plato and some of the great philosophers of the time. 
Um, because isn't that how things slide into popular culture through um, really prominent figures prom- promoting things? Okay. So, uh, what were the Jewish views of sexuality? Yes. Before we go on, I just have yeah. question. What about consent? So, you've got a 14-year-old boy. Is he considered a man at that point? Does he leave his parents' household? Yeah, well, yes. It's kind of like entering into a contract with the older man? Yes. So, the younger boy would have benefited from this relationship because he would have, he would have begun to build contacts for himself in society he would it was an acceptable practice so it wasn't like people were like oh that's you know we can't believe you're doing that it's like this is my partner this is my pederastic partner and um, he would make friends and be able to build a career for himself often the younger boys were were not part of prominent society but then were able to move into prominent society as a result of this so many of them probably would have wanted to do that well, I mean, there's documentation that they would have had multiple partners if they wanted, but one partner at a time was typically the acceptable practice. So um, there's some real famous uh, pederastic couples. I, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think it's in the Odyssey. There are two characters in there that um, their relationship most scholars agree that it's they're they're referring to them in a pederastic relationship. So, um, but there are court documents also that uh, uh, there was a man who was in a pederastic relationship, but he was accused of prostitution and lack of restraint with another man, and uh, he was convicted of this and and sentenced to prison as a result of it. So, um, they had to be careful in society about uh, what kinds of sexual practices that they were telling people they were involved in. Okay? Any other questions? That was a good question. Okay, so in Rome, adultery, before I go on, adultery was unacceptable. And, uh, and actually, pederasty early on in, in Roman culture was really looked down upon. So these, this were the Greeks. This is a Greek practice. The Greeks were really into this, but the Romans didn't, didn't really like it. Um, all right, so some Jewish views of sexuality. If you look at Song of Solomon, which we're not going to go there today, but um, there is something very different about the way that Israel talks about sexuality than when you're reading texts about the ancient Near East. And then even as we move into, um, you know, some of the major prophets in conjunction with what's happening in the classical Greek period, right? So they are, there is a, there is a set apart nature. And uh, I don't know if you've read Song of Solomon, but Song of Solomon is, just a, a beautiful love story between what is believed Solomon and um, and his, you know, the the love of his life, right? So um, now Solomon did have like nine hundred wives, but this one was pro- was the most important. Okay, uh, and and yet 
Solomon um, in in Song of in Song of Solomon, when he and his lover are describing their relationship, uh, there's an adoration for one another. Um, she's not demeaned in any way in her femininity. Uh, she's not, even in the way they speak to each other, she's not considered the lesser of the two. Um, so it's really interesting how wholly different Israel is in the way that they talk about sexuality. Yeah. Sure. You know, when when you see and you can see a progression through scripture of what you're what you're describing, you know, what what was considered beautiful. Um, And that changes through every culture. I mean, you've seen painting the painting, the Mona Lisa, right? Um, I mean, in our in our standards today, that would not be considered as beautiful as it was when it was first painted, right? So certainly Israel was, uh, I mean, they, they were in a culture of, peop- of, of people that were telling them what was beautiful, right? And they would have valued some of those same characteristics. Yes? Right. It's just about where the symmetry is in the body. So like, uh, man, you're making me go ahead of myself, but it's good. Like in, in uh, today, when they take a woman and uh, put her, if they're going to put her on the cover of a magazine, they don't take a picture of her and stick that picture on the cover of the magazine. They take a picture of her and they take the most unblemished part of her face, half of her face, and they double it. And so they make it symmetrical on both sides, and that's what we see, and that becomes our standard for beauty, right? It's very interesting. Okay, we're going to talk more about that, though. But yes, symmetry is important. It's just a matter of where that symmetry is, okay? Um... So obviously in Jewish culture, they had very strict guidelines about sexuality. Um, there are uh, several scriptures in Deuteronomy that talk about uh, men and women not engaging in sexual intercourse while a woman is on her period, um, not having sex uh, or intercourse with, um, with a person of the same sex, or not engaging in sexual activity with animals or there's a lot of sexual practices that are prohibited in scripture. Um, there are some extra biblical texts within the Jewish texts that talk about homosexuality um, and even talk about it in a way that is not necessarily con- condoned, but uh, 
permitted among a group of soldiers. It's just there's just like one or two references to it, uh, which is kind of strange given Israel's history. Um, and some scholars don't really know what to do with that. Most people don't really think it fits within the typical Jewish context of sexuality. But just just to let you know, in case somebody brings that up, there are some extra biblical accounts of, of that of the homosexual practice. Um, and I think what's really interesting too is that there's quite a bit of language that uh, referencing sexuality in scripture that talks about God and his relationship to humanity. So um, Ezekiel twenty three nineteen is very explicit. Um, I'm not going to read it now, but it's a very explicit uh, verse where it talks about Israel lusting after her neighbors over their desire for God. Now everybody's going to look, look it up. Uh, when somebody gets there, you're, let me know. I'll let you read it. Huh? Yes. Uh, Jeremiah seven eighteen is also an interesting verse. It references um, the Queen of Heaven, which is talking about the practices of other cultures, and that would have been a reference to Asherah, um, which is interesting because using the phrase queen of heaven is sort of out of character and out of context for um, the biblical text. But that, that's just kind of an interesting out of nowhere scripture. Uh, lust and sexuality, lust and sexuality typically reference metaphorically the ways in which Israel had turned from the Lord. So when, when God talks about Israel turning away, he's, he's talking about them in the context of committing adultery and um, I, I think that's so interesting, right? Because the reason, we're, the reason that we are talking about sex, the reason that we're, we're building towards this discussion about what God's intended purpose was is that the church is so silent about it. And yet all through Scripture... <clears throat> Sexual imagery is, is a big part of how God describes his relationship with his people. Isn't that really interesting? All right, Coach, you got it? Yeah. You probably don't want to read it, do you? Yeah, well, I don't, I'm not going to read 20. No, you need to read both. 19 and 20? 19 and 20. Just so people, if yeah, you've I never heard this. I read this to you when you were a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she turned to even greater prostitution, remembering her youth, when she was a prostitute in Egypt. She lusted after lovers with genitals as large as a donkey's and emissions like those of a horse. And so, Ohabilla, you relived your former days as a young girl in Egypt when you first allowed your breasts to be fondled. That's pretty explicit, isn't it? She lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and emissions were like those of horses. That's in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember the first time I found out about this verse, I was like, you know, 12 years old. And I, we were in the back of the church and me and my buddies were just back there just 
I mean, we couldn't hardly keep it together. We were laughing so hard. <laughs> Just like, there's no way. This is like a gym in the middle of the Bible. So, um, okay. There, uh, another really, in, another really important thing. I want you to hear this and then hang on to it because we're going to talk about it later. Um, we don't really have much later, do we? So there's a, a practice called endogamy. Does anybody know what endogamy is? Surely somebody knows what it is. No? Endogamy, you'll know what it is when I tell you. Endogamy was the practice of Israel marrying only within Israel, right? So when God says, don't, don't intermarry with the people that you are going to conquer as you go through Canaan and take the promised land. Don't intermarry with other cultures. God is asking them to practice what we refer to now as endogamy. Okay. We will actually see some hints of that in Paul's writing to Christians. Okay. He's not, he's not solely promoting endogamy with Christianity, but he does reference it's um, helpfulness within the relationship. What's that? Correct. Yeah, don't be unequally yoked. And there are, there are a couple other scriptures that we will go to. Um, we're not go- we're, I didn't even plan for us to go there tonight, but we will talk about those. Um, now, there were times where intermarriage with other cultures was considered to be outreach, right? There's a famous story about this. Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is not an Israelite and Boaz marries her, brings her into his home, and then uh, ultimately is uh, in the lineage of Jesus, right? So intermarriage was Ruth's way to practice her faithfulness um, to God where she otherwise wouldn't have been able to if she hadn't intermarried, okay? So endogamy was promoted, but there were exceptions to that. Now, um, there is a, there's a historian named Philo who was a Greek. He was hired by the Romans. And, um, you know, the, or I'm, he was a Jew. And, and Jews typically hated people that worked for the Romans. They kind of considered them sellouts. And, uh, but, but Philo was, uh, was a historian. He's of Alexandria. And he was alive from about 20 B.C. to 50 A.D.-ish. And he considered endogamy a, the best option for the Hellenistic Jews to restore Judaism in the midst of, of such a pervasive practice of um, what they would have said was, was just terribly immoral sexuality throughout that was just widespread, right? 
And, um, and so then Philo also begins to promote sexual abstinence. And this was influenced by some of the writings of Plato. So Philo, this is really important to the, the common Jewish beliefs of the time because it's, it's reflecting that. So Philo, he, he reinterprets the 10th commandment where it says, don't covet a neighbor's wife or ox or plow by, by removing the direct object. He, he's, he's saying that this 10th commandment is referencing nothing in excess, including sex. And so this is the first echo of what we begin to hear over time that eventually the Puritans really take hold of. The idea that since it's possible for something to be done in excess, we should totally eradicate it from our life period. Okay? That is the foundational belief under abstinence. Abstinence allows for people to not be consumed by the flesh, to be free of any kind of um, sexual immorality to be led there at all. And therefore, it is the best practice, right? What'd you say? Yes. And Paul would have been aware of Philo. He would have read, probably read the writings of Philo. So, you also see this in as the early church fathers in the second and third century, they start to really promote sexual abstinence, which then eventually leads into what? Monasticism, the, the, the priesthood within the Catholic Church, and on into even some of the Reformed beliefs of Christians in, you know, the um, 8th century, 9th century. Then you have the Restoration and the Puritan movement. So Philo isn't necessarily the only person that promoted this, but this is some of the this is some evidence that we see to begin to hear that whisper of abstinence. Okay? So abstinence allows you to live a life of simplicity, to not be pulled into any kind of excess. And the worst form of excess is sexuality. What's that? Yeah. I mean, I think you can see all of that in this, like separation of, of the body from the soul and, you know, that we don't really exist or that we have to be completely um, unemotional in any way, that emotionality is what leads us into a life of... Um, Indulgence and indulgence is the worst thing. Why is indulgence the worst thing? What was their value? Moderation. Yeah, restraint. Symmetry and restraint. So it would make sense that an idea like abstinence would really take root in a culture where restraint was worshipped. Right? And then it's promoted from that point forward. Now, am I saying that abstinence is wrong? No. Am I saying that Paul was not inspired when he speaks about abstinence? Not at all. But I do want us to understand 
how some of these concepts about sexuality, they don't just come out of nowhere. They come in the midst of a culture that is very sexually promiscuous in ways that, um, that were very offensive to Jewish people and early Christians. So you have people that grow up in Greek and Roman culture where practices like pederasty are, are popular, adultery is okay, it, as long as it's with temple prostitutes. Um, and they're worshiping gods using sex. Now, imagine somebody turning from that and becoming a Christian, right? All of a sudden they are saying, okay, what's different in my life? What's going to change? And the idea of sexual practices as they had been um, preserved through time and hailed as okay, now they have to redefine how they see sexuality. So for many of them, if they were very bent towards the lust of going to, to the temple to worship, um, you know, the, the goddess Aphrodite and other gods and using sexual practices to do that, if that was something that was really an insatiable desire for them, then it would make sense that they would want they would, they would want to stop having sex altogether. It would, it would be like, I don't even want to go there anymore because of where that takes me. Many of us have had those same experiences in life. Maybe not with sex, but w- maybe with other things where it's like, I want to live differently and therefore I'm going to totally step away from it. Okay? It would be no different than an alcoholic who has been binge drinking for much of their life and they decide to give it up. They're not going to just drink every once in a while. That's not what AA is about, is it? It's about eradicating it totally, eradicating the behavior. So we see this in the early Christians because of the sexual practices that are happening around them. So you read passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, where Paul is begging them to flee from sexual immorality. And these are the kinds of things that he's talking about. Worshiping God alone, not worshiping these other gods that they're accustomed to to worshiping. Now, the last thing that I want to talk about, shoot, I've got two minutes, okay, um, Man, I just don't have enough time. Uh, Okay, Constantine. um, Anybody know who Constantine is? What's that? That's right. And and he was a... He was a Roman emperor. So Constantine, he is converted to Christianity. Um... Now, a couple of his predecessors have been burning Christians. You, you've heard of Nero burning Christians as candles. That practice, con- that, that continued on for centuries. I mean, so Constantine comes on the scene about 300 AD. And when he comes on the scene, his predecessors have been persecuting Christians. They've been throwing them in the lion's den. They've been, not lion's den, in the uh, Colosseum to fight lions and bears and all kinds of stuff. There's lots of literature on that if you're interested in it. But 
he comes on the scene and he wants to be like he wants to be seen as the um, Hezekiah of his of his day. So he just totally gets rid of everything. All temple worship is gone. It's illegal. And he, he says we're gonna we're we are going to establish the the Christian church within the Roman Empire. And the Roman Catholic Church is born. Now he he had a, a historian and writer who was sort of like a publicist for him at the time. His name was Eusebius. And he was the one who, who framed what Constantine was doing to kind of reflect what Hezekiah had done. Um, most of what they did was eradicating worship of Aphrodite. That was a large part of what Constantine focused on. Now, other things became illegal as well, but that was really the thing because Aphrodite's, the worship of Aphrodite involves sexual practices. So, there were several things about this writing at the time that Eusebius talks about. Sexuality in the flesh is bad was one of the things that was said. That sexuality removes the focus off of God and that procreation is the only purpose for sexuality. And this is actually one of the first times we see somebody explicitly promote procreation as the sole purpose for intercourse. I'm going to leave it with you there. Okay? I hope that you'll join me next week. Uh, I I hope that you find this information helpful, and um, we are building towards a different view of sex. And so I, I hope that you will stick with us. Thanks for coming.